the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back with you, and I'm happy to be with you here, Wendy. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Um, we recently had the Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery course. Uh, yeah. In-person, uh, week-long class that you had been, for which you'd been preparing for a really long a time. A long time. And I just wonder if you could share with some of our podcast listeners anything about how that went. It was in so many ways uh, a crowning moment of my teaching career. I feel like, and I don't know exactly why I feel this way, but I feel like it almost, maybe it's an exaggeration to put it this way, but I, this is how I felt it, that everything I have learned and all the courses I've ever taught, all the lectures I've ever given somehow were preparing me to teach this course on Mary. It was thrilling as a teacher and we had uh, about 70 students we had um, a long waiting list of people who wanted to take it but we because of covid everybody had to have his own room at the retreat center and we had to do the whole social distancing thing which we coped with wasn't so fun but uh, it was it was it was a joy to guide those 70 students into this mystery of mary as the representative of the whole human race who gives her yes to God on behalf of all of us. One of my favorite quotes from JP2 here is, do we not see in the woman? And he, he uses that biblical expression, right? Remember, Jesus calls Mary woman. Uh, do we not see in the woman the fundamental battle for every human being's yes or no to God? And I want to relate that to something Pope Benedict XVI said. Uh, he says, God awaits the yes of the creature, just as a bridegroom awaits the yes of his bride. And Mary is the yes. Mary gave the yes that God had awaited from the beginning of time. And the journey of the course was really entering into that yes. And to, to enter into that, yes, you have to look at where are the no's in my life? Why do I shut down? Why do I close? Why am I afraid to trust God? Mary is the one who was fully opened. And the, the Hebrew word for female, which is nekeva, uh, it also means there's this happy homonym. It means to be opened. That's the very identity of the female. And that's why woman is the model and the archetype of the whole human race because the the proper posture of the creature before the creator is openness this is why we're all the bride this is not shouldn't be anyway a threat to my masculine identity right christ who is the ultimate male through the incarnation right he comes in the flesh as a male and yet from all eternity he's open and receptive to the father you cannot give what you do not have. So guys, don't be threatened by this. Mary has so much to teach us. And I'd say one of the highlights of the course for me was, was realizing how uh, my longing for feminine beauty my whole life, uh, this has come to me in prayer over the years in, in 
greater or lesser degree and with lesser or greater intensity, but it came really intensely teaching the course that my yearning for woman, there's a certain nostalgia and nostalgia, it actually means a, a yearning for home. That's what the, the, if you pick apart the roots of the word, that's what it means, a longing for home, that we, we long to return from where we came and we all begin life in the womb. It's where we all begin. And we want to go back. And heaven is a, a kind of returning home because Mary's womb is heaven. Mary's womb is the dwelling place of the Most High God. That's what heaven is. And, and one of the scriptures that just really popped for the students was when Nicodemus says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus says you can't can't enter heaven unless you're reborn, unless you're regenerated. Nicodemus, can, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus does not say no. That's fascinating. That question, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? I urge everybody out there, take that to prayer. Take that to prayer. Because we, we <laughs> heaven is a kind of homecoming. And if our life began in the womb, what does that say about what heaven will be like? I just hold it out there for people yeah. to ponder. Pray on it. Mary provides a key to, to help us answer that question. I didn't get to take the course. I look forward to taking it another time when it's offered and when my life and schedule allow. I really do. I was able to meet some of the students and talk with them during mm -hmm. the week and had a sense of the the specialness of the time and the, the sense of just a deep blessing being received. And um, I was present for some of the masses and there were many priests concelebrating and it was just a really beautiful time. And I'm, it was a I'm special so happy time for all those who came. And we did film it. We are going to be offering it online uh, sometime in the future. So uh, yeah, keep posted at theologythebody.com. I hope you're on our mailing list. If you're not, consider joining that mailing list so you can stay uh, aware of what we're offering when. And we also want to invite you to consider becoming a patron of the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. We cannot do this work without the patrons who support us. For as little as $5 a month, you can sign up to be part of our patron community. And by doing so, we are making a commitment to you guys who are part of our patron community to provide you with ongoing formation in this Theology of the Body. You can learn more about it uh, through that link in the show notes. Ready for a question? Yeah, let's do it. This is from a listener named Michael. Hey, Michael. And he says, hello, Christopher. Hello, Wendy. Michael. <laughs> Thanks for all that you do. You're welcome. Here's his question. Are we male or female because of our genitals and chromosomes? Or are our genitals and chromosomes just signs of our maleness and femaleness? I guess I'm trying to understand the larger question of what makes a male a male and a female a female. Is it something deeper than these outward characteristics that we use to see that we are male and female? This is a great question. I thought so too. And I don't, I don't know that I can, I mean, I can give some food for thought, Yeah. but I, I love it when I get a question I've never had before. And Michael, you win a prize today. <laughs> I have never heard this question in 25 plus years of doing this work. Nobody has ever asked the question in that way. Right. But I think, I think Michael, what you're getting at 
is is related to the question of how our body and soul related yeah and is is the well let me quote john paul ii he says that the body is in some sense a sacrament of the soul mm -hmm. a making visible of what is invisible so we do want to affirm this maleness and femaleness are not merely biological realities John Paul II says this very clearly in Familiaris Consortio, section 11. He says, sexuality is by no means merely biological, but concerns the innermost being of the person as such. So it's also a spiritual reality. Uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of the body and the soul are so profoundly united Life begins at the moment of conception. That's what I want to say. Life begins at the moment of conception. And there's not a pre This is what I want to say. There is not a pre-existing soul that gets infused into the body when the body is created by sperm and egg, right? There is, there is one creative act of God. I know there are... There's some more nuance to this that I, I, I don't even have the technical vocabulary myself to get into. But we we cannot we, uh, we cannot conclude otherwise. Uh, body and soul profoundly united. Sexuality is not merely biological. You know, is this a chicken and egg kind of question? Well, it can't be a chicken and egg question in the sense that we don't have pre-existing souls. So, am I answering your question, Michael? I don't know. I I like that he threw in the word chromosomes there because. Chromosomes are the collections of DNA within our cells. And we understand so far in our development of understanding DNA as so fundamental to the person that we right. talk about, you know, having DNA testing or using it in forensics for crimes or, but in other ways, like it's in our DNA. Right, I mean, right. like it's it's the deep level of personhood. Yes, yes, yes. And so when he used that word, the chromosomes, it really connected in my mind with that. It's in our DNA, meaning it's so fundamentally human, and we can't um, separate body and soul of the humanity, but that there is a masculine or male soul in a male yes, yes. i think is accurate yes, to say yes there's right? not a generic soul why because the body is the sacrament of the soul and if the body is male the soul is male right so so here we have to we talked about the beginning of life and and I, I know maybe some of my answer was a little confusing because I don't even have the technical vocabulary needed to, to describe it. But what I want to affirm is that uh, maleness and femaleness is not something merely biological. There's not some generic human soul that gets zapped into uh, a body that has male chromosomes and a body that has female chromosomes, right? We are male or female through and through body and soul. So we talked about the beginning of life. This shines a light on the end of life, too. The rupture of body and soul is death. That's what death is. And death is entirely unnatural. The body, in, in the sense that the body and the soul were never meant to be ruptured, right? But because we experience this rupture, 
Uh, my sister died last year. Her body is in the ground. Uh, I know her body is returning to dust. I have every reason to believe that her soul is experiencing some form of union with God, but that's not the final story. We believe, because Christ rose from the dead bodily, that we are also destined to rise bodily. And St. Thomas Aquinas says the souls in heaven are in an inhuman state, awaiting their human state, which will only come with the resurrection of the body. Right? The soul is not the person, St. Bonaventure said. The person is the union of the body and the soul. So important. So it's not like you have the spiritual person trapped in a body, right? The soul is not the human person. The human person is the unity of the body and the soul. I hope, Michael, that's giving you some food yeah. for thought. I don't know that I can say much more about that because I just don't, I don't have the, the vocabulary to do so, but I, I, hope, I hope it got you thinking. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Uh, next question is from Laura. Who hey, says, Laura. She says, someone I love very much is struggling greatly with same-sex attraction. He's a born-again Christian. He believes that perhaps to starve the temptations may be the only way to go. Hmm. I hmm. want to bring some very basic TOB concepts to him about opening the yearning instead of starving the desires. Yes. Could you help me find the words that may help him reflect and remain hopeful? Bless you, Laura. I can feel in your question your deep love for this person. It's, it's evident. And I, I love also she's exhibiting a, a really good understanding of basic concepts that we talk about quite often and that I learned fundamentally from John Paul II, that we are called not to repress our sexual desires, but we're called to experience their redemption. Mm. And I, I don't want to read too much into the idea of starving that temptation you certainly, you don't want to feed the temptation. Um, so does that mean you want to starve the temptation? I would have to sit down with him to understand what he really means by it. But I think Laura is probably correct to have a little warning sign here that that is not the end goal. Mm. The end goal is not just to starve our disordered desires. The end goal is to feed rightly the desire in us that has been disordered. Uh, Father Jacques Philippe says it so well. He says, the only way to, to heal a bad appetite is with a good appetite. And, and that means, what is a bad appetite? A bad appetite is a good appetite that's gotten twisted up. So what is needed is the redirection of the appetite towards what we really desire. Now, this takes initially steps of faith because your body might be screaming, here's what I want, here's what I want. But you know objectively what your body is screaming for is objectively disordered. So we have to plant our flag of faith in the beginning of saying, Lord, I believe you want to satisfy the deepest desire of my heart. Mm. And I plant my flag, I make an act of faith that you did not create me to frustrate me, that whatever I'm experiencing in me that is disordered I surrender to you and I invite you into that disorder 
to redirect the desire towards what I really desire. I once heard it said this way, and it just resonates so deeply with my heart. No one is so free as the person who desires what he really desires, Mm. which is a recognition that there are fundamental desires in us that get twisted up. And to, to be liberated means to desire what you really desire. You know, our, our culture talks a big line about sexual liberation, but by that they mean just following your disordered desires wherever they take you, right? right? Indulging your disordered desires. But true sexual liberation is not the liberty to indulge your compulsions. It's liberation from the compulsion to indulge. Mm. That's a radical difference. And I think this is where Laura wants to help lead her, her friend. Uh, Laura, I would, in, I would encourage you to invite your friend to this act of faith. Uh, there's a psalm that I pray whenever I'm feeling my disordered desires tugging at me. And it goes like this. I treasure your promises in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. I treasure your promises in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. What is the promise? The promise is the fulfillment of all desire. When we treasure that in our hearts, it saves us from sin. Because what is sin? It's misdirected desire. It's, it's sin is a lack of faith. And what is faith? Faith is the, John Paul II says, faith is the openness of the human heart to God's gift. What is God's gift? God's gift is the fulfillment of my deepest yearning. God's gift in my hunger for infinite joy. God's gift is the bread come down from heaven, the bread that gives the infinite joy. We, we've said in previous podcasts, in fact, I think it was just last week in our podcast that we were talking about the relationship between the Eucharist and human sexuality, yeah. the marriage bed. And we could put it this way, and I think this is particularly important for those struggling with same-sex desires. Untwist any sexual distortion, and you're going to end up at the Eucharist. What do I mean? I often tell the story of uh, a person I, I know who has same-sex attraction, who had this experience of desperately wanting to drink the blood of this other man. What's going on there? He wants to, t- what's in the blood? The, what's in the blood is the life of that person. And that man wants to take in, wants to drink in that blood because he believes that the manhood he's seeking is in the blood of this other man. And I, I know a counselor who once described the homosexual inclination as a cannibal compulsion. Why a cannibal compulsion? Because cannibals want to eat people they admire because they believe they will acquire their traits. That desire to drink that other person's blood is, is a great example of that cannibal compulsion. I want to take that person's blood into my blood because I believe I will acquire the manhood that I feel that I lack in myself. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know the homosexual inclination is, is a very complex matter, and I don't want to give the impression that I think I, I understand it, but I do know that this is a factor involved in it. Untwist that 
that kind of cannibal compulsion, if you will. Untwist that. Where are you? You're at the Eucharist, where we do take in the blood and the body of the ultimate man, and we do acquire his traits. Every sexual perversion, untwisted, will take us to what we're really looking for. It will take us to that freedom of the person who is free because he desires what he really desires. What do we really desire? We really, really desire union with Jesus. It's what we really desire. There's a parallel here with female homosexuality as well. Part of authentic, an authentic Christian life is devotion to Mary, our mother. And every woman who untwists what, what might be that, what, well, if it is a, a, a lesbian desire, what is a twisted desire, untwist it and you will find yourself in right relationship with Mary. Mm. I'm thinking about, as Laura shared, that her dear friend is, um, is a born-again Christian. Maybe she means that he's not Catholic, but that he has a, a, an alive faith yes, and relationship yes. with the Lord. And thinking about what you were sharing about the Eucharist, I just had a thought of him reading the the story of the Last Supper and just placing himself in the place of one of the apostles being given by the Lord to eat. This is my body, drink, this is my blood. Um, just as one example of many, many ways to pray that are fruitful, but yes. because, you know, you were sensing the importance of this connection with the Lord giving us his very self yes. to take in. Um, I think just sharing that as a possible, you know, encouragement to him to recognize how sincerely the Lord loves him. And I, I think that too is really on Laura's heart and, um, that deep need to know that he's loved. Yes. When we experience something that we don't want to experience, and we can feel a self-hatred, a feeling that God must hate me or yes. reject yes. me, those kinds of things are so painful. And so, you know, what the evil one wants for us and to, to uh, place himself frequently in, you know, going to church, going to prayer or Bible study or places where he can hear the Lord's voice saying to him how much he loves him, just frequently just connecting again and again that we need to keep hearing it and keep opening our hearts to know it so that his grace can be flowing. And he loves you as you are, where you are. There's nothing you need to do to earn that love. The more that love comes in, the more those desires begin to get set aright. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is a bitter, bitter struggle. It is a taking up of the cross every day. I don't anything I'm saying here to imply at all that I think, oh, just say this prayer, do this little thing, and tomorrow you'll be great. Uh, <laughs> I know from my own inner battles with my own disordered desires, these things do not just go away because we said such and such a prayer. But it is that daily taking up of the cross. It is that daily willingness to invite Christ into the desire as we experience it. We don't need to pretty it up. Say, Lord, come into this desire. Right now, I have this desire. 
fill in the blank, whatever it is. What is the real desire you feel in that moment? Don't, and here's where I'd say, don't, don't try to rid yourself of the desire. And if that's what he means by starving the desire, then yeah, that, that would be a problem. But open that desire as you experience it to Christ's indwelling presence. He came and died on a cross and rose from the dead precisely to meet us where we are to bring us where we're called to be. Mm-hmm. All our sufferings united with his can and will become our joys and our glories. That's the promise. The invitation is not to starve ourselves. The invitation is to bring our desires into the banquet. Would you, some of our listeners may not be aware of the Living Waters ministry. I yes. Don't know if you want to mention yes, that yes, as absolutely. Well. A dear friend and colleague in ministry, Andrew Kamiski, uh, runs his ministry is called Desert Stream, and the program he offers uh, for the healing of, of the sexually broken is called Living Waters. Mm-hmm. And it's not just for those who have same-sex attraction. It's for anyone who experiences any kind of disintegration. And guess what? That's all of us. It's for everybody. Uh, so we'll put a link in the show notes to Living Waters. Um, they have programs all around the nation. Uh, hopefully you could find one in your area. And uh, it's an ecumenical program. Andrew spent 30-plus uh, years as a non-Catholic in ministry and then later did become a Catholic, but he has he's very sensitive to the ecumenical issues, and uh, it would be a great program, Laura, for your friend. I have a question from Kaylee. Hey, Kaylee. She says, I'm reading your book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. Based on your chapter called Who Says, what do you feel about Vatican II? Should this have ever happened, or was it a devil in disguise. So for those who aren't familiar with my book, the Who Says chapter is about church authority and who's the Catholic Church to be telling me anything anyway, and why should I care and why should I listen? Um, And she, in that context of church authority, is asking a question about the Second Vatican Council. There has been a lot of conversation out there in the Catholic blogosphere and media world about Vatican II. And was it a valid council and problems with the council? And uh, even some people that, you know, scholars that I've known and trusted and respected are saying, in my opinion, some rather startling things about the council. And I think what's going on is a kind of collective concern with the state of the church in 2020, mm-hmm. which I share. Uh, We are in dire straits. We are in a very, very difficult, painful crisis in the church. And people are looking for reasons. Why are we in this crisis? And some are going back and saying, the council is to blame. I do not share that perspective. Are there places in the council documents that could use improvement? Sure. Was it worded perfectly? No. Um, that's the case with any church document, you know, that's, it's, it's written by human beings. Um, there's always room for improvement or expressing it this way or that Mm -hmm. way. Um, so I don't, I don't find fault with those who find some faults with the council documents because there are some faults in the council documents. 
because they're written by human beings. Nonetheless, the council documents received as they were intended, and not just nitpicking on this or that or word choice, but the council document as it was intended is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's an ecumenical council. If, if we start throwing out the Second Vatican Council as some work of the devil, well, now you have a different ecclesiology. You have a different understanding of what the church is. What is the work of the devil is to get in and twist up what the council taught so that we get confused and you end up with some vague, they call it the spirit of the council, which ends up meaning whatever anybody wants it to mean. And Pope Paul VI himself, in the aftermath, aftermath of the council, said, it seems the smoke of Satan has entered the church through some crack. Mm. And that was his, you know, just looking out at the church and what was going on and the chaos that was happening after the council. Was that the council's fault? No, it's the enemy attacking the gift of the council. Uh, that's my perspective. I think that's the authentic Catholic perspective. There's sure there's room for improvement in some of uh, count, the council documents. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Um, but the, the, the council was a gift. And I, and I would also point out this, just historically speaking, we're only 55 years out from the close of the council. And historians will tell you that whenever there's a council, a major council such as this one, it takes about 100 years for the council to bear its fruit. And in those 100 years, there's a lot of what the historians call post-conciliar chaos. Well, I was born in the late 60s, and you were born in the early 70s, and all we've known is this post-conciliar chaos. Don't blame the council. Rather, have patience that the gift of the council will bear its fruit. And it has already borne tremendous fruits. Uh, one of the great fruits of the council is the theology of the body itself. Another great fruit of the council is the catechism of the Catholic Church. And there will be more fruits. We have yet to see the liturgical renewal that the council promised. But let's give it another at least 45 years and see what happens. And let's have patience. Let's have trust. The council will bear its fruit. I love what you're giving us in terms of historical perspective, because that's a really hard-earned thing to have historical perspective. As you said, we've only lived this way, and we've had whatever religious education we've had. And, you know, it tends to be kind of limited in terms of how we understand the much bigger picture that you're talking about. Um, so thank you. Thank you for all your study that we're benefiting from sure. here and just trying to open our eyes. And, and it can be sort of um, disturbing to our sense of our foundation to have someone say, well, things are not as they should be. Well, then what do I trust in? What do I, you know, um, find comforting? You know, and so I think the question in your in your book, you know, who says is about being able to trust the authority of the church, and yes. I, I appreciate that. That's really important in this whole debate is to trust the Holy Spirit is behind the gathering of the council. There is an enemy that has caused some things to be misapplied, misinterpreted. Yes, but to trust that God sees the bigger picture and is making 
continually beautifying his bride and that we are, you know, so close to him. He's working on every single one of us and he's working on the whole church. And he's not afraid of post-conciliar chaos, <laughs> right? This is part of our humanity. He enters into our mm. chaos to redeem it. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of looking backward to this or that fault with the council, uh, I think we need to look forward to his promise, as just as you said, Wendy, that he's beautifying the bride. But we got to let him into our crud. We got to let him into our own personal chaos. And part of the chaos we got to let him into is this tendency to to want to blame the council for things the council is not responsible for. Uh, the enemy, there's, I think Pope Saint Pope Paul VI said it the best. The enemy has entered the crack, the, the church through some crack, the smoke of Satan. It seems like it's entered the church, and and that has caused a lot of chaos. There's no doubt about that. But he doesn't win. In the end, he's he's cast out, and we know who wins. Let's trust in that promise, and let's ride this post-conciliar wave uh, the whole way through, and and the the council will bear its fruits. I'm I'm utterly convinced. So yeah, the council is a gift. You're a gift. Our listeners are a gift. <laughs> Everybody knows what we're talking about, right? If you're listeners to our show, you know this is how we end. But we mean it sincerely, truly. You are a gift, indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.